Hi, I'm Kelly. And I'm Lavinia. Welcome to There She Goes, where women writers share true stories of travel. Their stories, their experiences, told in their own voices. One of the reasons we started this podcast is that the first time Kelly and I met, we told each other travel stories. We were complete strangers, but after spending just a few hours trading stories about experiences in Morocco and South Korea, Italy and Greece, we were friends. Our travel stories connected us. We recognized them as important. And we came away from that first meeting feeling validated and inspired. This is the power of women's personal travel narratives. Consider our storytelling podcast a brand new passport, transporting you every week to a different place for a brief escape, sometimes far away, other times closer to home. Consider our storytellers your brand new travel friends, your sidekicks and sisters and guides. Or even therapists. And consider this your chance to hear some of the stories you may have missed. There She Goes is that simple. No chit-chat, no interviews. Just great storytelling by women travelers. We invite you to settle in for the adventure. Today we travel with Abby Kozolczyk as she makes her way to Suriname, Paraguay, Guyana, and French Guiana on an epic, maybe even heroic, personal quest to right a wrong. Abby spent the first many years of her career in the world of women's magazines, where she wrote and edited for the likes of Glamour, Allure, and Cosmo. She is the author of the National Geographic book, The World's Most Romantic Destinations, and she has recently contributed to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Los Angeles Times, among others. I'm Abby Kozolczyk, reading my story, Fill in the Blanks. Mine, I admit, is an unorthodox quest. Lacking as it is in magical treasures, meddling deities, sinister beasts, and epic loves. Yet it has nonetheless consumed me since the fateful winter's day 12 years ago, when I wandered into the deceptively unremarkable Barnes & Noble near my midtown Manhattan apartment. With my first trip to South America looming, but only loosely planned, I wanted to browse the store's most encyclopedic guide to the continent. No sooner had I grabbed the thickest one and turned to the map page than I noticed a grave error. Four countries were missing. Yes, four. Paraguay, Guyana, Suriname, and French Guiana. Literally left off the map. Blank gray spaces in place of actual name-bearing nations. Okay, technically, French Guiana is an overseas department of France, but still. Willing to suspend disbelief and accept that maybe I'd picked up an oddly defective specimen, I reached for the other copy on the shelf. But again, the four were conspicuously absent. Unidentified bits of irregular geometry alongside Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, and Venezuela. Now I was truly stunned. I understood that no guidebook editor was going to spring for entire chapters on virtually untouristed places. Still, to go so far as to make deletions from the map was something altogether different, the sort of behavior traditionally reserved for, say, terrorist organizations. And somehow, I felt so personally offended, perhaps by the idea that a guidebook, of all things, 
would play into the stereotype that Americans are willfully ignorant, if not totally dismissive, of whatever's beyond our borders, that I vowed right then and there to avenge the omission. Precisely because these places were left off the map, I had to go see them, and though I lay no claim to sanity here, discover at least one spectacularly cool element of each that could be found nowhere else. The quest was on. And then, just as quickly, it was on hold. Of the nearly non-existent flight options I found, each seemed to be priced somewhere between mildly amusing and criminally insane, topping out in the $10,000 neighborhood. For economy. Periodically, I'd recheck the fares, the days turning into weeks, the weeks turning into months, and the months, alas, turning into years. Meanwhile, as magazine assignments took me ever more frequently to South America, I managed to see every country on the continent but the Forgotten Four, until the day I realized I had enough miles to tack a quick Paraguay stop onto my next work trip to Peru. Be still my quixotic heart. The next morning at the Paraguayan consulate, I was met with total bewilderment. Why, the visa application ladies asked, would I want to visit their homeland if I didn't intend to conduct business there or volunteer for an NGO, as did the only other American applicants they'd ever dealt with? Why not, I countered. The truth was, despite Paraguay's war-ravaged, dictator-intensive, narco and Nazi harboring history, there was, I'd read, much to recommend the place. The faded glory of Itapua's Jesuit ruins, the stark beauty of the Chaco, the biodiversity of the Pantanal, and of course, the consumer electronics district of Ciudad del Este. This last attraction was responsible for the majority of the country's tourists, Argentines and Brazilians whose appliance budgets went significantly further here than at home. Though I would have loved to see all of the above, a forthcoming magazine editing gig dictated a highly abridged intro to Paraguay. I'd have to satisfy the craving and the terms of my quest during the course of a few days in and around Asuncion. Upon landing at Silvio Petirossi International Airport, I was again met with total bewilderment, the official Paraguayan response to American tourism as I was quickly picking up. But neither the immigration officer's line of questioning, what the hell brings you here? nor the ungodly hour could temper my euphoria. I had, after all, arrived. And as soon as I could take a real look around, I liked the place. Despite being utterly unconcerned with appearances, because really, who was there to impress? Asuncion was full of beauty, starting with the intense greenness of the streets. Given the average daily temperature of a trillion degrees, Shade trees were everywhere, heavily accessorized in seasonal reds, pinks, oranges, and purples. Equally gorgeous and abundant was the centuries-old architecture, all spires, columns, friezes, and domes. And though its 21st century occupants consisted largely of bootleg CD vendors, the juxtaposition somehow worked. But the most distinctive local beauty was invisible. I learned to listen for it. Guarani, the country's indigenous language, is such a breathy, vowelicious confection, I could have gorged on it nonstop. It's spoken to varying degrees by more or less every local, which distinguishes it from all other indigenous languages in the Americas. Not that Spanish doesn't get equal play in Paraguay, but locals constantly weave back and forth between the two in a way that felt sweetly familiar to me. Much as my grandparents, shtetlniks who raised their family in Cuba, 
would switch from Spanish to Yiddish mid-sentence when the most tender and affectionate of terms were required. Paraguayans slip into Guarani when discussing, say, kids, or pets, or a particularly beloved dish. Even the colonial Jesuits, who weren't exactly known for their staunch preservation of indigenous culture, were taken with this language. Father Antonio Ruiz de Montoya, the 17th century author of an entire book on the subject, deemed Guarani so copious and elegant that it can compete with the most famous of languages. Ruiz de Montoya retained the title of most unlikely Guarani proponent until 1970, when a man named James Carson was appointed U.S. ambassador to Paraguay. The diplomat went on to not only become fluent in the language, but also to record an entire album of folk songs in it. Sadly, I myself mastered only one word, agouye, or thank you, but it was good for some of the best taxi driver smiles I've ever gotten. Mission A accomplished. Apparently, my success in Paraguay triggered the exact cosmic momentum I needed. Shortly after I returned, I received, as if from on high, a newsletter from a tour company called Adventure Life about a certain jungle rivers and tropical islands trip. This two-week expedition cruise, departing exactly one day after my editing stint was set to end, would include stops in the prize ports of Suriname and Guyana. French Guiana, unfortunately, didn't make the cut. Too expensive a stop even for cruise operators, I later learned. But in the immortal words of Meatloaf, two out of three ain't bad. And if I could simply manage to get assignments on Brazil and Curaçao, the ship's first and last stops, the trip would pay for itself, or close enough. So I lined up a couple of bridal magazine honeymoon stories and told Adventure Life to count me in. Again, my introductions to each country would be brief, a day in Suriname and two in Guyana but I'd learned in Paraguay to relish that extra layer of the challenge. Not only did I have to find something uniquely amazing, I had to find it fast. Things took a turn for the discouraging, however, as soon as we pulled into the Guyanese capital of Georgetown. The country was so untouristed, to the tune of 500 annual foreign arrivals max, that it rolled out a special brand of red carpet for us. Everywhere we went in our two little buses, motorcycle cops accompanied us, as if we were UN envoys instead of retirees and a travel writer. Not only were the sirens wailing the entire time, the lead officer would part multiple lanes of traffic, Moses-like, with a simple wave of his hand. And as we rolled through town unimpeded by such nuisances as traffic lights and other vehicles, the locals had to swerve to the side of the road and wait. Death by mortification seemed a distinct possibility to me. Yes, the capital had a bit of a reputation for violence. Yes, caution was advised, but a motorcade, really? To the extent possible when there's weaponry at the ready, I did enjoy the Natural History Museum, best life-size giant sloth replica ever, and the weather-beaten British colonial architecture that housed everything from churches to Chinese quickie marts. Still, the police escorts made any genuine experience of the place seem endlessly elusive and quest fulfillment increasingly unlikely. Mercifully, they didn't follow our next convoy of little Trans-Guyana Airways planes into the jungle. Our destination was Kaiter Falls, where none of the stats I'd read pre-departure, five times higher than Niagara, two times higher than Victoria Falls, meant anything in the face of such ridiculous beauty. 
cutting a ferocious path through a vast and otherwise undisturbed tract of rainforest. The Portero River poured what appeared to be Kalua and Cream at a rate of 23,400 cubic feet per second over the sheerest of cliffs into a mist-expelling cauldron below. Ignoring the please stay a minimum of eight feet away from the edge sign, with silent apologies to my parents, I walked out as far as I could to look for the rainbow that reportedly appeared on command in the gorge. And when the vapors below and the clouds above cleared all at once, there appeared, as if on cue, the mythic prism. It was almost too much. What was missing from the scene was equally notable. No megafalls, souvenir vendors, snack shops, commemorative photographers, or uh, guardrails. Indeed, there was no trace of humanity, save the aforementioned and abundantly disregarded warning sign. Just little old us and big old wilderness. Once the group had gotten its fill and headed back to the plains, I lingered at the edge of the falls for as long as I could without losing sight of the last diminishing body. I knew I was never going to get any closer to being one, literally one, with nature. Mission B accomplished. Next came Suriname, where things were almost too easy. Despite being the continent's smallest sovereign state, it offers a confluence of humanity that exists nowhere else on Earth. Among the country's half a million or so residents, most of whom live in and around the capital of Paramaribo, are Amerindians, Suriname's original inhabitants, Hindustanin, descendants of contract laborers from India, Surinamese Creoles, descendants of West African slaves and Europeans, Javanese, descendants of contract laborers from Indonesia, Surinamese Maroons, descendants of escaped slaves, Chinese, both descendants of contract laborers and new arrivals, Borers, descendants of Dutch farmers, and Sephardic Jews, descendants of the first Jewish community in the Americas. And this crazy mix is what I fell for at first sight and sound and taste and smell, if you count all the languages and foods that figure into the equation. Suriname is the kind of place whose unofficial national dish is a Caribbean-spiced Indonesian soup, whose lingua franca is an Anglo-Afro-Dutch-Luso hybrid, and whose best-known street mates are the mosque and synagogue that live side by side, or minaret by mikvah as the case may be, on the capital's central Kaiserstrat. In fact, I was so taken with the sight of these legendarily harmonious neighbors, one, the region's largest mosque, the other, Suriname's oldest functioning synagogue, that I filled the better part of a memory card with them. But my parting shot was of the nearby Arya Duwakar Hindu temple. And as I beheld this seeming love child of the Mughal and Dutch colonial empires, with its red domes and white verandas, my belly full of Chinese Caribbean food, and my ears tuned into an Urdu sidewalk debate, I left Suriname a very happy quester. Mission C accomplished. Mission D, alas, was another story. Though French Guiana is for all intents and purposes Caribbean, travel booking sites clearly consider it Plutonian. Fittingly, among the few outsiders who visit are astronauts and engineers bound for the French space station there. So the average flight search will yield either an astronomically priced and comically protracted series of connections, or a message that says, no flights match your crazy fucking request, lady. But on the 12-year anniversary of the quest, and on the verge of conceding defeat, I thought of something I somehow hadn't before. What if I could redeem miles for a round-trip ticket to a nearby Caribbean island, 
then buy a separate ticket to French Guiana on a local carrier. Suddenly, I was off. To pile on the gravitas, as one should when completing a journey of this magnitude, I arrived in the capital city of Cayenne on a big birthday, one I wanted to pretend wasn't happening and from which I sought major distraction. And Lord, did this Amazonian Caribbean Overseas Department of France deliver. Beyond the imported French school teachers and nurses, plus the aforementioned astronauts, I was pretty much the only out-of-towner. Good thing, too, as the local tourism official could recommend nothing to do, nor any way to do it if I didn't have my own car, as I happened not to. Making clear that I was keeping her from her afternoon siesta, she ushered me back out onto the sidewalk. But no matter. I was determined to like this place in spite of itself, and somehow made my way to haunting old French penal colonies, the wildlife-filled marshes of Co, even the incongruously modern space station at Kourou, where I happened upon a launch. And while all of the above was duly impressive, not least the fiery ghost tale of the Soyuz rocket over the Caribbean, nothing felt quite quest-satisfying. Until I reached Cacao, which I did thanks to, well, a rent-a-friend, Having asked around Cayenne for a guide who would take the hour-long drive with me, hang around for a bit, then return me to my hotel, I was eventually sent to Gwyn. Never mind that this Parisian transplant wasn't actually a guide, but rather an event planner with a car. She was friendly, interesting, and my only recourse. Picture, if you will, a Hmong village in the thick of the Amazon basin, where you can not only find the exact same dishes you would in, say, Luang Prabang, but also eat them alongside half of Cayenne on any given Sunday. In fact, if you don't arrive by noon, chances are you'll forfeit your seat at the communal tables, and worse still, your portion of pho. When the French government first brought 45 Laotians here from a Thai refugee camp in the 1970s, the projection, and eventual reality, was an agriculture-based community that would become self-sufficient within a couple of years. But who could have predicted that the village market would go on to become the thing to do on Sundays, when traditionally clad Hmong-speaking women would sell sticky rice, bubble tea, and, in local parlance, soup pho to Creole, Carib, Arawak, and Parisian devotees. However improbable the scene, I found it endlessly beautiful, gloriously cacophonous, and yes, by God, miraculously quest-fulfilling. Mission D accomplished. On my return to New York, I found myself wandering into that fateful midtown Barnes and Noble. And as I instinctively headed for the travel section, its rows overflowing with possibilities and the corresponding guidebooks, I froze in my tracks and took a last minute turn toward new fiction. You've been listening to There She Goes, a storytelling podcast created by two women travelers and recorded from their homes in Alabama and Louisiana. Our theme music is a selection from the song City of Refuge, created and performed by Abigail Washburn. Thanks to Jay Burgess for engineering. Thanks to our amazing writers for proving how essential women's stories are and for bringing their voices to There She Goes. And thanks to you, our listeners, for coming along. We hope you'll be back next week for another story and another stamp in your new passport.